Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. It's not surprising that some psychiatric conditions have very obvious characteristics. One such condition is characterized by hair pulling and skin picking. The formal name, trichotillomania, is a combination of Greek terms which means an impulse to pull hair. Joining us today from California is Christina Pearson, who is the founder of an organization known as the Trichotillomania Learning Center. Their website is www.trich.org. There is a tremendous amount of good information on that website. Ms. Pearson, thank you for being with us. It is such a pleasure to be here. Before we go any further, it's important to say that during the course of this interview, we may talk about things that could be treatment recommendations. It's important to emphasize that any treatment recommendation or decision is really the result of an individual decision between the patient and the doctor. Okay, that being said, let's begin. How common is trichotillomania? And tell us a little bit about it. Trichotillomania, compulsive hair pulling, is a lot more common than people think. Conservatively, what we have found is between 1.5% and 3.5% of the United States population has trichotillomania. And what's interesting about skin picking disorder, which is very, very closely related, is it's probably even higher, 5 to 7%. But we estimate about 3 to 9 million Americans struggle with hair pulling and probably 7 to 12 million, 14 million struggle with skin picking. This is, of course, across the lifespan. Those are pretty sizable numbers. They are. Is it more common in males or females? Is there a gender preference? That's a very interesting question because what we see with hair pulling disorder is that prior to the onset of puberty, it's almost 50-50, boy-girl. At the point of the onset of puberty, it radically changes and we see as much as 80% female, 20% male. So what we don't know is the role of hormonal changes, but that is pretty significant. And what's interesting with skin picking is that we actually see a slightly higher degree of males than we do in the hair pulling. Are there any cultural differences? Do we see it in Anglo-Saxon groups more than Oriental groups? Is there any data taking us in that direction? There is some data that shows that in the African-American community, the compulsive hair pulling actually runs pretty high. But I will say this. I will say that generally the people that reach out tend to be more educated, tend to have access to more resources, but that these disorders are common all over the world. We have heard from hundreds of countries, people struggling to find answers. We see no socioeconomic or ethnic or cultural real phenomenon that changes the dynamic. There is a little bit of a difference in how different communities treat it. Some are more shame-focused than others. Us, living in a very, very image-conscious society, there's a huge amount of shame with these disorders, so it's very difficult for people to even acknowledge that they have them. This brings up an interesting point because one has to wonder if they realize what the long-term implication of picking or hair pulling may be. Do they realize that they may end up causing scars that won't go away or hair loss such that they'll have to wear a hat all the time? It is a process, but let me reframe this. One of the things about hair pulling, skin picking, and nail biting is that we really propose a kind of overview term called body-focused repetitive disorders. And these are kind of like primal grooming mechanisms that are very common to every single human body and yet seem to go 
beyond the norm in some of us. It's different than what we call classic self-harm. The goal of pulling hair is not to cause harm. It is not to cause baldness. The goal of picking skin is not to cause damage. It is actually to rectify a problem, something, an anomaly, something that is different, doesn't belong there, feels out of sorts. And your comment on the the criteria for diagnosis of trichotillomania in terms of the preceding tension, relief of tension, that doesn't hold true for everyone. We've actually recommended to the work group on the DSM-5 to drop a couple of the criteria that are currently required for diagnosis of trichotillomania, and that would be the preceding tension, relief afterwards, and also the sense of gratification or relief, because that does not happen for everyone. Not everyone is driven by stress or anxiety. Oftentimes, the triggers are more transition states, going from busy to slow, having a bifurcation of needing to make a decision, being in a passive response receptive state where the body is still, but the mind is very active. So those are not preceding tensions. When I was in school, we were given the ideas that this process was to reduce some tension and that some of the tension was actually they were afraid of being or having that sense of being alone. But you're saying that's not what's going on. The kids that start pulling their hair and grow up into adults that pull their hair, that is the last thing they want is attention on that level. What we seem to find is that it has to do with interpersonal connectedness plays a huge role. When you feel connected and communicative with other people, there's rarely an impulse to engage in these behaviors. Somebody walks out of the room, you're totally alone all of a sudden it becomes this need to kind of link inward neurologically to kind of soothe the nervous system. I would actually liken hair pulling and skin picking at the most primary level to the similar behavior of a toddler sucking their thumb. The goal is not harm. Now, harm comes. Harm comes as a consequence of the damage to the body. And then you have the psychological impact of why am I harming myself when I don't really want to? And so that created terrible, terrible conflicts for people. And now that we understand that there's some underlying neurobiology and that there are actually brain function differences and also brain volume differences in certain parts of the brain, we're beginning to get a better picture of some of the underlying mechanisms. Trichotillomania was first put in the DSM-3, I think, in the late 80s, and it was put under impulse control disorder. Skin picking was actually put under impulse control disorder not otherwise specified, so it had even less. It had no diagnostic criteria. Today, hair pulling will probably go under what is called the obsessive-compulsive spectrum disorders. Mm -hmm. And skin picking disorder will probably go in the appendix as something that needs more investigation because it does not even have criteria for diagnosis yet. Our organization has been pushing hard to change some of that, bring it to more awareness, both at the scientific level and the professional level, and of course, raising public awareness. We don't have perfect answers yet, but there is effective treatment, and there are things that work. Our organization is probably the very best resource in the world to begin to put together a good education on what good treatment looks like, how to access it, what to do if you cannot access it. Is the hair pulling anywhere on the body? It seems mostly on the head, but is there any thought, any data about that? 
Yeah, and actually some people try to change where they pull. Men will pull from their chest, from their legs. Women will try to switch to their legs or arms. The problem is, is that there does seem to be percentages of areas that are most common, and the scalp is the most common. Then it goes to the eyes, the eyebrows, the eyelashes, goes to body hair, leg hair, genital region. The hair anywhere is fair game. And skin, the same thing for skin anywhere on the body? Skin, absolutely. And what you'll find with a chronic skin picker is that a lot of times the face is the most common area. And I grew up with both hair pulling and skin picking, which is why it is such an honor to do this work today. And I am completely pick-free and pull-free. Good. So it's a living example of, guess what, This we can change. But there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. Just in October, a study released out of Cambridge University by a doctor named Sam Chamberlain about some changes in volume in the white brain matter of individuals. Uh, so we're beginning to see you know, what that means. We don't know yet. But the idea is that there's been some volumetric differences in different areas. We've also identified a couple of genes. And currently, our organization, the Trichotillomania Learning Center, is assisting or putting out the word for Dr. Mario Capecchi, who is a Nobel laureate from 2007, because he's looking at a defective microglia as a potential source of at least some forms of these body-focused repetitive disorders. And so it's exciting that there's just a very different level of approach beginning to emerge. I want to get in just a minute to the notions of how one intervenes and actually treats this, but there has to be a point where there can be no return. If someone continues to pick themselves or pull hairs, there can be infections, there can be other things that won't go away. There can be permanent scars. That's true. That is true. And it's agonizing to the being. Absolutely agonizing. I mean, in my early 20s, I seriously considered I wasn't suicidal, but I wondered if I could cut my hands off, would I be able to have a life? Because my hands were my enemies. They had a life of their own. They were causing damage, damage, damage. And yet I would cry watching my hand go to my face, my head. And I, I, I share that because it's something many people have been through. What's important to understand is that Trichotillomania by itself is generally not life-threatening. About a quarter of the people who engage in the hair-pulling behavior do something oral, and a certain number of those people will eat the hair, either a small piece or all of the hair, which hair is not digestible, so it's important to understand that that can cause a blockage. It's called a trichobezoar or a hairball, and that can be life-threatening. So if there are digestive problems, somebody is engaging in mouthing, eating, swallowing all or part of the hair, it's something to be aware of. With skin picking, you're not so likely to get infections with hair pulling, but septic infections are a big danger with chronic skin picking. It is important to understand that anytime we breach the skin, there's the potential of bacteria being entered, things like that. What are some of the warning signs that should be looked for? Well, here's the thing. With very small children, a lot of kids go through a, a developmental phase of playing with their hair. They might pick at a scab. But if you see it is fairly chronic, if you see that the child is engaging in the behavior as a way to entertain themselves, to 
disengage themselves, to soothe themselves. It's something that you might want to look at. We have some wonderful resources for parents. We don't recommend that you just go rushing a small toddler in for treatment because there's most of what needs to happen is really in the family environment because with small children, that's who's most in control is the parents. And we have a lot of information on how to deal with that. With the older kids, You'll oftentimes see eyelashes missing, eyebrows missing, maybe a spot on the hair when you're fixing their hair. You'll begin to see sores that don't seem to heal. And the idea here is to approach it lovingly, practically, kind of low-key, because getting worked up over it just causes more anxiety. How do we go about treating these folks? Is there a standard format, so to speak? There's several different steps. The first one is education. It is important to understand the nature of the disorder, the overview of the disorder in terms of it's not life-threatening. And guess what? All that hair that a child pulls, generally, it's going to grow back. Too often I hear of families that say, oh, my God, the doctor told me the hair wouldn't grow back. And it takes a lot of years to do that kind of damage. The human hair follicle is incredibly prolific. You need to ramp down the anxiety, educate the family, and then hopefully present them with connection to a, a therapist that they can access in their area. The first line of defense is really cognitive behavioral therapy, and there have been several different styles of approach that have been much enhanced over the last 20 years. Originally, there was something called habit reversal therapy. What we have found is that that by itself is really not very useful, but there's been a lot of building on that, and there are several different models which are very effective. And in fact, there's something called the, the comprehensive behavioral treatment approach for trichotillomania and skin picking, and you can get the treatment protocol on our website. It's a wonderful approach. We also have training DVDs for professionals who want to learn that. A recent study out of Massachusetts General Hospital found that basically cognitive behavioral treatment enhanced with dialectical behavior therapy was found to be very helpful with adults. You know, and then there's some acceptance and commitment therapy types of approach. But what I will say is that bringing the mindfulness and bringing the centeredness into this as a kind of whole person approach is really what's necessary. You can't just go after the symptom. There has been no medication that has been proven to be effective for hair pulling or skin picking at this point. There are medications that have an FDA indication approval for prescribing for a particular disorder from the FDA for obsessive compulsive disorder. And it used to be that people thought that hair pulling, skin picking, oh, that's just OCD. But if it was, those medications would work much better for these primal grooming mechanism disorders, and they don't. They don't work very well. Now, you will have anecdotal cases where somebody does well. Recently, there has been a chemical breakthrough. In the past year, Dr. John Grant at the University of Minnesota did a double-blind placebo-controlled study on N-acetylcysteine, which is an amino acid, and actually 56% of the individuals in that study for hair pulling got significant relief. Now, what we don't know is really what's going on there, but it points us in the direction of the glutamatergic system in the brain, and that's a different direction than serotonergic, which is where everybody's been looking. So we're very excited, and we really need a tremendous amount of research to be done. And we have a research fund, but we really need it to be much, much bigger to come up with the answers and results that this community really needs.
Joining us today from California is Christina Pearson, the founder of the organization known as the Trichotillomania Learning Center. Let me give you their website again. It's www.trich.org. The website has a great deal of good information. Ms. Pearson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.